Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm PJ Professional Clay Winnell coming to you live from the 1L Studios here in friendly Bedford, Texas, with very special guest tonight, Mr. John Altshuler. Welcome to the program. Clay, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and uh, it's about a 30-minute drive from Dallas. Thanks for the time, man. You bet. Thanks for the invitation. It's, uh, it's truly an honor as uh, we're trying to leave some breadcrumbs for other entrepreneurs here in the internet space. I'm starting to wrap my mind around how I can build my own business around the Tuesday Game Golf League. And uh, I'm excited to interview other business owners like yourself in the future to see what we can maybe learn from you and your story and uh, maybe get some inspiration for uh, polishing up our business plans, even though I understand you started your business without a business plan. There wasn't much of a plan. It's fine. We'll get into that later, but uh, that's the really the theme tonight is breadcrumbs. We spoke with uh, attorney Sean Tate last time here on the Grown Man Radio Show, and he was walking me through building a business plan. If you really want to do a business right, it's smart to, uh, to start out by doing a business plan. Obviously, it's not absolutely positively essential, but uh, last time we were talking about thinking about our customers uh, as like something like fishing or hunting. You got to identify sort of an avatar of your customer and then think about strategies to be in the right place at the right time to present something to your ideal customer that's going to be intriguing to them. And in my case, I'm trying to attract people to play in a golf league. And uh, we've been doing it organically over the past two years. And it's been a lot of fun. It's really oriented my life in a positive way of, of really trying to focus on one thing. And it's something that I can see myself doing for the rest of my life because I love to play golf and I can continuously get better month by month now that we have a rotation of playing the last Tuesday of every month at different courses around DFW and and ultimately we're hoping to grow the business to where we can do a different game nationwide every month and get other satellite locations playing the same format and uh, eventually save up enough money here to have our own plane the Leisure Express and leave from the uh, airport right there by the historic golf club of Dallas on a Tuesday morning, go play somewhere out West. So we save some time with the time changes and then get everybody back after 18 holes for dinner, because we want the Tuesday game to be an asset to families. We want it to enhance people's lives, not to be like an escape, but something that sprinkles a little, you know, nice Maldon salt on top of that life. Why is it Tuesdays? Tuesday has always been a very special day for me because for many years working at high end clubs, Uh, I work six days a week, and Tuesday was our day to blow off some steam. I'd play golf with caddies and other club pros, and so it always kind of had a symbolic meaning to me that Tuesday was a day of leisure, and uh, I wanted to make Tuesday special for other people and and bring them a community-oriented, eudaimonic leisure experience. I talked about in our last episode that I spent a lot of time chasing hedonic leisure experiences where you're just trying to get hammered on the golf course you know when you're in when you're young and dumb there's a time and place for that but it gets kind of old after a while and so i typed into google what's the opposite of hedonism and it was this idea of eudaimonia which is essentially the human thriving so that's sort of our mission statement of the tuesday game golf league is to enhance lives through a community-oriented eudaimonic leisure experience and uh, it's a mouthful for basically having a good time and getting access to friendly, compassionate people that can help you network and increase your social capital and uh, help you become the best version of yourself. That's cool. 
It is cool. I really like doing it. And I get to play a lot of golf. I keep sharp with my game. How's your game, by the way? Shot one in five today at Rivercrest. How'd you feel about that? My worst hole was an eight. I had one par, missed a lot of a lot of doubles and some triples. Can you take us into your mind a little bit? So you're a busy guy. Uh, you own your own business. We're going to get into that. But what does golf really do for you right now in your life? I'm enjoying having something to work on to try to improve. I, I like lots of aspects of golf, particularly the hospitality aspect of it. I love hosting people, and golf gives you a nice reason to do that. For sure. Yeah. And I love our course that, we, that you work at and I get to play at. It's a cool course. Hidden gem, under the radar, historic golf club of Dallas. Same guy that designed uh, Colonial. Southern Hills. And Southern Hills. And you can play it, and it's 20 minutes max from downtown Dallas. And you're going to play in under four hours just about every time you tee it up, even on Saturday. Are you kidding me? I walk at 240. You do play fast. What's yeah. that all about? I just don't take practice swings. I love it, dude. No, it, you, you're there for a good time, not for a long time. If I'm playing by myself, two and a half hours is max for 18 holes if there's nobody in front of you. It's the way to go. You, you, you don't want to interrupt your flow with too much thinking. You want to hit golf shots, move on to the next one. Do you walk or ride at Golf Club of Dallas? Uh, it depends on the, the season. If it's hot, I'm not, I'm not walking. But in the wintertime or if the weather's right, or if it's car path only, I love walking that course. It's super walkable, but now we got those fancy new carts, so you can hop on those bad boys too with the USB chargers and the GPS and all the bells and whistles. They're uh, they're putting a lot of money into that golf course. It's looking really good. I agree. But uh, well, and and you're taking lessons from one of sort of the legendary golf instructors here in uh, the DFW area, Stephen Ama. Can you tell us a little bit about what you like about Stephen? I like the discipline of, of a regularly scheduled practice and instruction session. I like Steven for his consistency, just the things he's been working on with me. I can tell how it's building. So I just enjoy going out to, going out to Glen Eagles and getting there 30 minutes early, staying 30 minutes later and having an hour with him just of intense training. And are you doing a lot of high tech stuff or is he more low tech? He has plenty of high tech. I just don't like tech. So we're mostly moving from the driving range to the putting green to the practice area for short game. Okay. Yeah. Well, I learned how to do Aimpoint Express from Steven many moons ago when I was working at Dallas National, and that was one of those golf skills that definitely took strokes off of my game, and it only takes you about maybe 90 minutes to figure it out. Have you gone through that yet? We have not. Oh, yeah, definitely hit him up for the old Aimpoint Express lesson. It's like what Adam Scott does when he holds up two fingers oh, and he's looking yeah. at it. That confuses me to no end. I know. It looks like that at the beginning, but you're so smart, you're going to pick it up in, in no time, and you're going to be dropping more putts. It takes the guesswork out of reading greens because yeah. you're feeling in your feet where the pressure is and you know where downhill is, and you know the, the architects can try to hide the slopes as much as they want, but if you can feel it in your feet, you can, you can read greens really well. So check out Aimpoint Express. Shout out Stephen Amick. If you'd like to call in tonight, Stephen, we're going to open up the phone lines here in a little bit. 469-844-0328 is the phone for the grown phone. Um, and, John, you own Alt & Co. That's right. It's a real estate company. Is that the way to say it? Commercial real estate advisory firm. Yeah. Okay. 
And uh, I like to do a thing where I try to summarize your life for you. Can you tell me when I get it wrong? Sure. We grow up in Dallas. We go to school at SMU. We go to UC Berkeley for business school. That's right. We work for Goldman Sachs for a bit. 10 weeks. Then we go into real estate, working for Trammell Crow. Trammell Crow first. Okay, before Goldman Sachs. Right. That was an internship in business school. I see. Okay, and then it sounds like you work for like the Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, like the superstars of business for a while, and you kind of learned how to do it. And then you went off and started your own thing without a business plan. Pretty much. That's cool. Yeah. That's pretty gangster. Thank you. So what, what was, did people laugh at you when you started a business without a business plan? Well, I didn't go running around saying I didn't, I didn't have a business plan, but I'd say that I left in, in mid-2009, and that was a rocky time in the economy, probably somewhat like it is today. And I felt like the market was going to be bad, whether I was at my previous firm or at my new firm. And so I just stepped out and set up my own firm. Hell yeah. And so what is uh, the first step in setting up your own firm? If I'm trying to start the Tuesday Leisure Company, and uh, I've written on my board here, what should I think to ask about with John? Should I talk to him about finding my first office space to start a business? Should I talk to him about hiring people? Where was your head at when you're like, okay, time to do my own thing. Let's go. I just went to see a bunch of people. Tell them I was available. I was here's what we're going to try to do. And we're looking for clients. We're looking for colleagues. And what I learned really quickly, really in the first two months, was that any business comes down to three things. You have to have clients, colleagues, and capital. And so I created a spreadsheet that detailed you know, three, three headers, clients, capital, and um, colleagues. And it started listing down all the people I was meeting with and which of those three buckets did they fall into. So that's the way I think about really any business is you know, who do you want your clients to be? Um, who wants to work alongside you? How much money does it take? That's my system. That's pretty streamlined. Yeah. Now, are those the kind of ideas that you learn in business school? I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think business school to me was 21 months in a different part of the country with a new set of friends, getting exposure to new ideas, um, not just in the classroom, but also just from, from people coming from around the world. It's where I picked up my first set of international friends. So... We did learn things in, in class, but I can I can point to two things that were really important that I learned in class, and that's probably what I remember. Which is just meeting new people. Wait, sorry, I didn't follow. What are the two things? So the two things are um, the first was a strategy class where the professor told us he wanted us to always remember this: there's never a shortage of capital. There's only a shortage of good ideas. So even as right now, when the market's tighter, there's less liquidity, there's less, do there's fewer dollars, there's still money available. You just have to have a really good idea. So never a shortage of money, only a shortage of good ideas. And the second thing I learned was in a marketing class, and the professor t taught us in business, never get caught in the middle. Be small, be big, be low price, be high price, but never be middle. Interesting. Yeah. And he gave examples of all the middle businesses that just go away. So that just goes into a good niche. You got to know yeah, your target market. Right. right. Okay. Uh, I'm paranoid about my laptop turning off the screen here. Can you tell us a uh, amusing anecdote, maybe about some of those hippies you met out there at UC Berkeley? 
Well, I mean, I, I, don't, know if, I don't know that I'm that funny. I will, I will dispel the idea that Berkeley's full of the Birkenstock hippies. I feel like it's certainly a progressive place. It's a liberal place, but it's a really cool place with a lot of energy and it's just you get on that campus and you can just tell it's the big time. I want to go check it out. That's I've spent awesome. like zero time on the West Coast. I got family in San Diego, but I'd love to go check it out. Berkeley's campus has the same architect as Central Park. Oh, no way. Uh -huh. I should know that. Yeah. I was a Parks, Recreation, and Tourism Management major at Clemson, and they talked about that dude's name, and they talked about the strategy for having like meandering trails yeah. to, to like inspire like a feeling that you're discovering the park, that it's like unfolding before you. And... Uh, you know, I, I didn't really always give the most credit to the Parks, Recreation, and Tourism Management degree, uh, especially because our first class was called PRTM 101 Concepts of Leisure. And now here I am talking about the, uh, you know, the health benefits of leisure. That's cool. What a weird world we're living in. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, if you'd like to call in tonight, you can talk about leisure. You can talk about your business, maybe try to get a question in. The phone number tonight when we open those phone lines is going to be 469-844-0328. Your Instagram is very clever and funny. Really? Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and it looks like you're everywhere all the time. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this dude is everywhere. How does he manage his time? What's the deal? How do you manage your time? I think I have really good throughput. What is that? Throughput is the amount of work you can produce for a unit of time. So that helps you with time management if you can generate a lot of work when you're working. High density work. Yeah, just high value work. I focus on things that move the needle for me, for my firm. And I have a great team that I work with that works their tails off. And you do a lot of handwritten notes. What's that all about? Who taught you to do that? My mom. My mom taught me personally. Then I had a couple of bosses that promote that reinforced that professionally. I just like to write. I'd, that was I'd cool. rather I'd rather write our podcast probably than talk it. Does this make you uncomfortable? No, I just don't talk that much. It makes me uncomfortable. You do a good job. Well, thanks. I can hide it pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that was really sweet. And my mom uh, is a is a queen of snail mail too. So uh, it was inspiring to get a nice thank you note from you. And uh, a very generous Christmas gift from me with a nice uh, note. I know I, I speak for everybody at the golf club when I say thanks for that. It really goes a long way uh, on, the, on that. And I'm going to start doing that for the Tuesday Leisure Company. I want to get some nice stationery with the bear logo on it and just write little notes to people saying uh, that you appreciate them. And uh, it's so rare these days that I think it just makes people like their heart melt. It's funny. I remember when I was at my last company, and this is back when people would send like a copy of a letter and it said BCC. So like I'd received the BCC version of the letter that I knew my colleague was going to receive. And so I saw the letter, this is back when mail would get dropped off in your inbox on your desk. And I saw his mail get delivered into his inbox and I watched him lean back and open this letter from someone who he and I both thought very highly of. And I'd already seen the letter, but I knew he was going to see it for the first time. And I watched him open it, hold it, read it, reflect upon it, read it more. And it, just, it was a real 
reinforcement for me of how important that letter was to that guy. So I think letters matter a lot. For sure they do. And now is that, do you tie that into throughput? Is that like some of the most valuable time that you can spend is sitting down and writing a really thoughtful note? Perhaps. I mean, to me, it's like anytime I interact with someone for 30 minutes or longer, I tend to think it's worthy of following up with what that interaction meant to me. So, yeah. That's another thing that I think that I've, I've been like starting to pay attention to life a little bit more, which has been fun and good. And uh, I'm learning to develop my communication skills and follow up skills. I think I've, I was just very in, introverted and didn't it wasn't natural to like if I had a cool hang with somebody to say after the fact, like, hey, I really enjoyed that. But I think in starting a business that, again, could be potentially the most important thing that you could do to kind of just churn the pot and keep the cheese from sticking to the edges of the, the deal. I think the most important thing you probably can do is to take action, is to do something. And perhaps the second most important thing would be to follow up and follow through. If you don't do take the first action, there's nothing to do. I think I understand what you mean. Well, I guess I'd say the same guy that wrote that letter to my buddy taught me a long time ago that there's two kinds of people, people that get ready to do something and people that do something. So again, I think the most important thing is to actually do something. And then it's also important after that to follow up and follow through. Like if you're not taking action, if you just have ideas, ideas are great, ideas are romantic, ideas are charming, but ideas are just ideas. You have to take action on the ideas if you want any chance of success. So for me, starting the business in 2009 without a business plan, at least I was starting. Right. And I think that I'm in a, uh, a similar deal in a, in a weird way in that we already have programming, as Sean Tate explained to me. You've already got a game that you can theoretically turn into a business and get revenue off of. Um, and I'm doing something but I think I can refine that via a business plan. And uh, I think I can learn a lot from your uh, company motto of chewing glass and spitting fire. What's that all about? I just like the, like the expressions. We oh, should make some t-shirts. That would be good. I enjoy your Instagram too. I've watched you make a lot of t-shirts. I'm getting into screen printing big time. Do you actually it's, do the artwork? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's been very enjoyable for me, trying to think about like the most simplistic symbol of what you're trying to do so i've got the race at water chase coming up at the end of this month which is going to be kind of, you'd love it fast paced to play okay. we're going to do a shotgun and we've got a play clock just like a football game you got three hours and 30 minutes of play time at the end of three hours and 30 minutes the race at water chase is over and even if you haven't completed your round the game's over so everybody has this sort of mutual responsibility to play fast and help each other play fast and I think it's going to be controversial maybe the first time, but I think it's going to bring in like a whole new style of play and really teach beginner golfers how to be really situationally aware on the golf course. Think ahead, like know where to put their clubs and like plan out their game in a, in a more efficient way that will actually help them shoot lower scores. Even though on the front end, they're probably going to be like, I drove all the way out here and you're rushing me around this golf course. What's up with that man? Hmm. I played around over Christmas and I had two of my fraternity brothers and I had a young guy that's in college and we played the front nine at 
golf club of Dallas walking in two hours and 10 minutes with nobody in front of us. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah. And so I pulled the guy aside who's in college. And I said, hey, man, we just played in two hours and 10 minutes. You're moving really slow. And I gave him some examples of what he was doing that were slow. And we played the back nine in an hour 50, which I commended him for, hey, you took the instruction, you turned it on, and we played at a normal, normal pace. That's the follow-up. Yeah. You did something, then you followed up. People, When we marshal on the golf course as, as golf professionals and people in the golf industry, that is like the single most tense thing that we do is trying to get people to hurry up because mm-hmm. they take it so personally. It's like an attack on their character if you say, would you please try to catch the group in front of you? It's this weird deal that like we need to have a better conversation around as golfers because playing in under four hours is not rushed at all. That's why I think three hours and 30 minutes for the race at Water Chase is a very cool goal. How do we develop a raking the bunkers culture? Raking the bunkers culture? I think it's hard to teach people to care. I think at the end of the day, that's what you're up against. If they're not really invested in the long-term success of the course and they're just there for the cheapest possible leisure, and uh, I think it just boils down, just like when you're hiring people, it's hard to teach people to care. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it would be cool to have caddies with every group, then it's a done deal. When I was working at Dallas National Caddy, and I mean, every bunker looked perfect. But uh, for a public play golf course, because you don't want it to be like surveillance state. You don't want people to feel like you're watching them in the woods. But I would say in a perfect world, there'd be some sort of like orientation program before you let people onto an 18-hole golf course. Uh, But I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think it's bad. I think this could be better. For sure. That's why we do lift, rake, and place in the Tuesday Game Golf League, by the way. So you can get whatever uh, bunker lie you want. But in a perfect world, you rake your damn bunker after you go to the bunker. Come on, man. I'm going to have another sip of some uh, sunflower catering juice. How do you hire people for Alt & Co.? We have we tend to have candidates meet with most, if not all, of our personnel. It's all I wouldn't say it's a formal process. It's an informal process that you probably are best coached through as a candidate. And so it's a gut feeling at the end of the day. Everybody meets with them, and they're, it's pretty obvious if uh, that person's going to fit in or not. I don't think it's always obvious. I, mean, I think we have some folks now that we're looking at hiring that people have had different feelings about. But um, I just feel like if you go back and look at the 2018 NFL draft, and you look at there's 30 teams in the leagues, 30 or 32, I don't know what it is, but if you look at the names, and I follow the NFL pretty closely, I bet I would only recognize eight to 10 names. And that's the most heavily scrutinized set of potential employees on the planet, right? Like they're being evaluated multiple ways for long periods of time, in person, on tape, many people, it's a billion dollar evaluation. And given that I can't recognize many of the names back in 2018, they don't do that good a job of it. Huh. So the point of all it is, is I don't know why people spend so much time fretting about who they're hiring and how they're hiring. I think you're probably just better off hiring. Okay, I think I heard Gary V say something along those same lines. Who's that? 
He's sort of an internet uh, entrepreneur guru guy that's real rah-rah, and he's basically fail-fast kind of strategy. Do stuff, react, don't over overthink it. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good strategy in your opinion? Well, I mean, I like the screen for if you're out of undergraduate, how good are your grades? The better your grades are, the more likely you are to be successful in your first job, which is what I'm hiring you to do, your first job. I look for, like, what's your background um, in terms of how hungry might you be? I think having someone, hiring someone who doesn't have a lot to fall back on, that can be a easier person to bet on, in my experience, than the person who has lots to fall back on. Even though I've seen success out of both sides. Um, if I had to handicap, though, I'd say that the person who's poor, hungry, driven has more likelihood of being successful in, in our business, oftentimes. Same with pro golf. When I tried to play mini tour golf, you could see the guys that were going to make it because they had to make it. Yeah. They had to make it. Um, well, I'm excited when the time comes that I get to hire my first employee for the Tuesday Leisure Company, somebody that can help do the basics of the course setup so I can focus more on the hospitality. Uh, and I'll call you back when that time comes to help you. Hopefully you can coach me through those uh, interviews. Um, and you being in real estate, I was wondering if there's any like tricks of the trade of finding my first office space, any uh, pitfalls that first-time renters fall into anything to look out for like sneaky leases or anything like that i want to go back real quick to your idea of your first hire oh yeah let's go something that was helpful to me was being taught that you shouldn't necessarily think of that first person or any person as an expense on an annualized basis in our business makes sense to think of think of personnel expense as a monthly expense it's less daunting the consideration is less daunting to the entrepreneur if you think about it, that I'm paying this person one twelfth of an annual salary, not twelve twelfths of an annual salary. And I, if I were running the Tuesday game, I might think of it as I'm paying this person for one week to four weeks. That's what you're truly locked into. Even though you might think of it in your head as hey, I want this person to be here for a year. Well, that's yes, that's true. We all want people to stay for a year and longer. But as the person taking the economic risk, changing your mindset to such that it's a shorter term obligation, I think is helpful in helping people hire more people. Cool. Yeah. I can't wait to go back and listen to this again. I'm going to have to listen a few times to process this. Business stuff is not my forte, but once you listen to it a few times, I've listened back to the Sean Tate podcast a few times and now I understand what he was talking about. And sometimes in real time, I just have to sit here and be like, mm-hmm. Two great books on business. I understand. Our Shoe Dog, which is Phil Knight's memoir. Oh, yeah. You read that already? I, I know of it, haven't read it. Oh, it's fantastic. And then Confessions of an Advertising Man by David Ogilvy. Awesome book. Even if you're not in advertising, it's great. So I'd recommend both of those. In terms of your first office lease, I would be inclined just to have as short of a term as possible. And I would try not to go buy a bunch of furniture. I try to go find a space that's sublease in nature where, where a tenant has still has remaining lease term, is willing to offer that space at a discount and perhaps has furniture for you to utilize or have for taking their space. Do I even need it? What's it for? Office space? Yeah. Um, that's what I was going to say too, is like, why do you really need it? Um, well, I think in my head, 
It's like a golf simulator, cigar lounge, podcast studio. It's like a clubhouse. Yeah, it's like a clubhouse. I think that's the way office spaces are evolving for most companies. It's a place for, it's like a little hang. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. That's the way ours is. And we still have the old configuration, but the reality is it's used largely for people to sync back up and reconnect and also to do some work. But when I'm in the office, I'm not necessarily just grinding out at my desk for however long I'm there. It's a lot of interaction with people. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to zoom over back to hiring people. You, you wrote an article about working with millennials. Yeah. And you told a story about maybe one of your first deals where you're trying to get a Dickie's barbecue. Can you just tell that story and, and, and remind the folks at home what that taught you about working with millennials, if you don't mind? So I had a, a luncheon with a friend and he's like, hey, he was, he was a hiring manager for a tech company. And he said, how, how are you getting along with these millennials? And I, I told him, well, actually, I'm about to write a, an essay on this for DCEO. And so I wrote this long essay and part of the essay described an experience when I was 23 where, you know, I was a Trammell Crow company. I was working with a couple other young people and they'd give us assignments that they would tell us were really important. They were going to shape our careers and, you know, we could really grow our careers if we were successful on them. But looking back, they were terrible assignments. It was like hazing? It wasn't. It was professional hazing, but no one was like screaming at me. They wanted me to do well. But like it was the kind of assignment that. The only person who was going to be successful with it was someone who really felt like they had to be successful with it. So it was ground floor retail underneath the parking structure, hardly any visibility to the street and controlled by a lender with no funds to fund any improvements to the premises. So we found a Dickies franchisee who was had one location on Stimmons and wanted to open up a second location downtown. We convinced them that this space could work. We structured a deal initially that had the landlord funding the TI, tenant improvements, had that deal cut, had to go back to the tenant and say, look, landlord, in fact, cannot fund this. Can we give you free rent equal to the outlay the landlord was going to offer to fund improvements? Finally, he said that could work. Um, the lender continued to stall. And so eventually the franchisees started screaming at me like, hey, he wants to talk to my boss. Like, this isn't going anywhere. I want to talk to your boss. And so I put a guy on the phone named Anthony Fritchie, who was six months older than me, not my boss, speaker phone call with the franchisee. Anthony goes into the call telling me, here's how I'm going to stall the guy even further. He was going to tell the franchisee that he was really concerned about the meat temperatures. <laughs> meat was being served. He's going into that. We both start laughing out loud. It was immature. It was bad professionalism. That guy then, the fantasy's like, all right, guys, that's enough. Let me talk to your real boss. And so I had to get Chuck Anderson on the phone um, to talk to the franchisee. And we thought Chuck was going to fire us. He didn't. He ended up cutting the rate 50 cents and the deal got signed. But my point in writing that part of the story in my millennial essay was that I think we've all been millennials. I've been a millennial. Like there's lots of things I was doing. I described in the article in addition to this that we're millennial-like, and we just forget that this is just the latest iteration of us. You getting any Gen Zs in the office yet? How old are they? Right around 20. I have a 20, we have like a couple a couple folks under 24. Okay, yeah. I think those are Gen Zers. Yeah. Any different nuances there? 
I mean, I'd say hardworking, hard charging, a real interest in being in person. You know, if you think about that 23 year old person who just came out of college, they spent two years in COVID, like locked ah. down, people. So they're dying for that social interaction and just the relationships. Hungrier than millennials? Oh, I wouldn't say that, but people I've been around, I see hungry at all ages, you know? Interesting. No, that's a, that's a, I can see how that would happen. Um, very cool. Yeah, I read the thing about the meat temperatures and it wasn't clicking. I was like, I got to ask him to retell that meat temperature well, just story. Just to go back on that real quick, the franchisee, we couldn't put a grease trap in our premises. Too expensive. So the Dickies guy was going to cook the temp, cook the meat at his Stimmons location, bring it over to Brian Tower. And so my buddy was like, hey, I'm concerned about the meat temperature when these meats are being transferred from location to location. It was a credible concern. But we shouldn't have just laughed, and that almost brought us down. It'll happen. Yeah. It'll happen. Young and dumb. Hey, if you're young and dumb, give us a call via the Grown phone. That's 469-844-0328. I'm going to go ahead and uh, open up the uh, phone lines here. Uh, are your eyes better than mine? Can you read that comment down below? I see my daughter saying that we should call them and ask for golf advice. I don't know what that means. Now, your daughter was the one that put out the uh, the tweet this morning about this is a big night for golf. That's right. Is she kind of sarcastic? Yeah, you'd like her. Big fan. All right, the grown phone is open, ladies and gentlemen. This is your chance to talk to uh, a real-life businessman from the DFW area. Uh, that's 469-844-0328. And I see uh, you should call them and ask for golf advice. Yes, you should, folks. I think she's trying to tee us up with some viewers. Unfortunately, I think we only have two in the live stream. It's one of these things. you got to be a glutton for punishment in the those, content one, game. One of those is my daughter. Oh, for one, sure. One of those is probably a colleague. Well, that's okay. They, they, you, you leave breadcrumbs. They that's come right. back to it down the line. Well, um, I know you're a busy man. We can get you back out on the road. Um, what's your, uh, what are your goals for golf this year? My goal, I have the goals of shooting in the 80s. That's a goal. I'd like for my handicap to be half of what it is presently. And I'd love to be able to play golf at Redbird with Fred Rapal, the president of the USGA. Okay. All right. So what are you going to do to achieve those goals? I'm just practicing trying to improve my play. I mean, I'm playing a lot. I'm practicing a fair amount. How are you practicing? On the range, reading, um, on the putting green. How would you like for me to practice? I'd like for you to talk to Steven about how you should practice and report back to us of, uh, that's something playing mini tour golf. I had all the time in the world and I had enough money to do it exclusively for like two and a half years. So I had no excuses. And I put in, I gave my, I gave myself an A, A minus for discipline. I was all in, but it's still just hitting balls randomly was not enough. It was, I needed coaching. Uh, I needed someone to talk to about my strategy and I needed a, a physical exercise plan i needed a mental plan i needed a practice plan um so i would if you if you'd like to slash your handicap in half 
you're going to have to set up like brutally difficult drills that you do that are like not fun until you can complete the drills like going around in the clock system and if you miss the sixth of eighth uh eight foot putts you got to go back to the beginning and that sort of thing i think you got to kind of put yourself through the ringer to to take it to the next level having played with you you've got a good understanding of generally how to keep the ball in play you don't play with an ego which is better than most people you kind of just hit the shot that you know you can hit which is good um but i think you're gonna have to kind of go crawl through the uh the glass getting from a 24 to a 12 i have to crawl through glass because i think i play with a bunch of guys that are 12s who've never crawled they haven't been crawling through glass ever i think you should i think you should do it commit to doing it for like uh six months and reevaluate if it becomes not fun then we can abort at the end of the day golf's supposed to be fun but I think you'll find fun in the pain. All right, and how are we getting this USGA guy out there? I said you need to improve my play. I don't want. I'm not going to bring him out there to shoot 106. Why do you want him to come? Let's do. I think we're doing a great job at the course. He should be there. Okay, cool. Yeah. And is this uh, someone that you've met previously? Yeah, good friend. Oh, I yeah. see. Okay, can I play? Sure. Can we play a little Wolf Hammer? Sure. We better be careful, though. Why? I feel like sometimes, I don't know how these games work, but if someone, I just get nervous on Wolf Hammer if we end up with people that have just money they don't care about, and I care about money. Oh, yeah, nobody's going to get hurt too bad. Okay. It's lose 20 bucks at worst, okay. the way I set it up. Okay. All right, sure. Yeah, I've played too many games where it's like, oh, you lost $400. Sorry, bro. Yeah, that's not my vibe. Okay, good. I can't do that. Not mine. No. I like to enjoy the game. John Altshuler, you're a legend. Thanks for coming to the uh, Grown Man Radio Show here at the uh, 1L Studios in Friendly Bedford, Texas. Look forward to uh, golfing with you very soon. Hope to see you and you at the uh, Race at Water Chase the end of the month. Remember, the Tuesday game, Golf League, is the last Tuesday of the month. And uh, that's about it from all of us here. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks, Clay. Thank you.